0: the Super 70 Sports podcast Oh, hell yeah. Ah, welcome to the Super 70 Sports podcast. I'm Ricky Cobb. And we're back today with the second episode of an Easter weekend double shot for you guys. And I could not be happier about my guest today. You know, I am an old school pro basketball guy. My love of the ABA is pretty well documented by now. And I also love the NBA stars of the 1970s as well. And my guest today certainly qualifies on both counts. He is a three-time All-Star in the ABA and a three time All Star in the NBA. One of the greatest stars of basketball in the 1970s. Just a powerhouse of a power forward. He averaged 20 points and 11 rebounds over a 12 year professional career. And as of 2017, he is a member at long last of the Basketball Hall of Fame and a very overdue honor, I believe, for this man. And if you've listened to some of the past podcasts, when I've had Dan Issel on the show and when I've had Peter Vesey and others on, I've talked about how upset I was this man was not in the Hall of Fame. And so that, uh, thankfully, is no longer a concern. And let's go to the phone lines right now. Where joining me on the Super 70 Sports Hotline is the 1975 co-MVP of the American Basketball Association and a newly minted Basketball Hall of Famer, George McGinnis. George, how are you?
1: Good, Ricky. Thank you so much for that wonderful introduction.
0: Well, first of all, congratulations on being inducted into the Hall of Fame last year. Well deserved long overdue and, and i don't know how you were handling it but uh i've i've been angry for the past couple of years uh you know wanting you to get in the hall of fame so i was so relieved and thrilled for you that you, you finally got the call last year
1: yeah i was uh, i was really honored to finally uh, get the call um you know i i didn't know if it would ever happen i didn't know what the problem was you know my numbers were 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 extremely good and as good as the top three power forts that ever played the game, so uh but, you know, by the same token it's better late than never. And uh, again I was just totally honored to inducted
0: last year well as i say well deserved very much overdue it was a it was a burr in my saddle i, I talked to dan Issel about it on this podcast i talked to uh, bob netalicki about it on this podcast i had peter vesey on and i talked about it t- yeah. w- with vesey as well so uh whatever the, the the reasoning was as you said it certainly wasn't Uh, numbers-based because uh, you you should have been in the Hall of Fame 20 years ago, in my opinion. Yeah. But thank you. Well, you're certainly welcome. I want to ask you, it's appropriate that I have you on the podcast right now. We've got a huge 50th anniversary reunion coming up for the ABA, I believe April 7th in Indianapolis. This thing looks like it's going to be incredible, George.
1: Yeah, yeah, it should should be a really good one. We had uh, one for us. Think around the 25th uh, anniversary in Indiana, 25th or the 30th? I'm not quite sure, but we had a great turnout. But this one here is going to be special. I think uh, we've gotten some support from the Indiana Pacers and some of the, uh, uh, the hotels and different uh, folks in town. The NBA and the NBA Players Association have endorsed this, so we're looking for um, not only a big turnout, but um, We'll be able to talk about some great memories and uh, the impact of what that league had on the game of basketball itself. And it was really a tremendous impact.
0: And I believe that Bob Costas is going to be the MC for this. And. Most, if not all of the of the biggest stars uh, from the ABA are going to be there. I know uh, Doctor J is going to be there, yourself, George Gervin, Artist Gilmore, Issel, Rick Barry, Spencer Haywood. The the list goes on and on.
1: Yeah, yeah, we're expecting a a, a red carpet list of guys who are going to show up, and you know it's uh, we, it's just a testament to how. Many good players uh, there were in that league, and 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 you know it uh, it's going to be super. And you know, being an ABA uh, town here in Indianapolis, uh, there's still a lot of uh, ABA fans that that are left around here who remember the old Pacers, and it'll give them a chance to you know interact with a lot of these players. uh, so it's going to be a fantastic affair. The guys with the dropping down dimes foundation, which we'll talk about later, have done a wonderful job of um, keeping uh, this in the memory of people and and uh, you know putting this whole thing together. And it's quite a, it's been quite an undertaking. I think there's about a hundred guys that we're expecting to come to this. So wow. as you can imagine, it's uh, it's 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 been uh, been an undertaking. But the guys who Run the Dropping Dimes, have uh, been on this thing from day one to almost starting a year and a half ago, uh, putting this thing together, and it's going to be a tremendous event.
0: Well, you know, as I was telling you before we began taping, I was born in 71, so I never actually got to attend an ABA game, even though I lived in Kentucky, where where the Colonels were, you know, such a terrific franchise in the ABA, but this is my chance, so I've already made my plans, I'm going to be there in attendance, uh, on April the seventh, and uh, it's gonna be a thrill to uh, see all you guys there in the same place over a hundred players. That's incredible. Yeah, yeah,
1: it's gonna be it's gonna be really good. you know, uh, you know Kentucky was a, a perennial powerhouse in the ABA. And you know, one of the things that all the ABA guys always talked about was why didn't the NBA take the Kentucky franchise uh, under its wing when they merged uh, because it was such a such a good place to play in Freedom Hall and um, great players they had uh, their attendance was great. Uh, everything about what they did was first class so it was always a mystery why that franchise never made it to the NBA.
0: I can't tell you how much that burned me growing up in Kentucky because Kentucky's never had a major league professional sports team. Right. Since, since then. And so right. it, it's a, it's a college basketball state. And I was always a, a pro basketball fan, really mostly. And so that always hurt me. And I've, I've had Dan Issel on the show. I've had Hubie Brown on the show and <laughs> talking to those guys about it and, you know, how the Colonels missed out on the, on the merger. But, uh, you know, in the Indiana and Kentucky have so much in common in, in terms of being basketball. Basketball is really almost a religion in, in, in both those states, and and you of course grew up in Indiana. You were you were Mister Basketball in, in 1969. Your your Washington high school team went 31 and 0 undefeated all the way to the state title. Uh, what was it like? I mean, being Mister Basketball in Indiana. I don't know if people outside of the uh, the state of Indiana or the neighboring states really can fully comprehend what a huge massive deal that is
1: well yeah i mean you talk about guys who went before you bobby plump who uh played in 54 uh you know ended up uh, being a movie made about his team uh, hoosiers which i think was one of the great sports movies of all time then you had the first black team to win a championship in any sport christmas addicts who was state champions in 55 and 56 um so there's a just a lot of history so as a kid you know i grew up kind of watching all this um, you know and, and and march when the playoff when the uh, sectionals the regionals and semi-state and state tournaments started it was a way of life for people just to sit back and listen on the radio or watch on tv and i was no different and um, that's after the 56 team won i watched that game with my father and uh, I was six years old, and that's the first time I tested basketball. That next day, Sunday, all of the kids in the neighborhood went out back and started shooting hoops. And, uh, you know, they always talked about, well, I want to be an Oscar. I want to be this guy. And that's kind of the way it started for me. It's just kind of a way of life, same in Kentucky, as you well know.
0: Absolutely. And it's interesting. I thought you spoke very beautifully during your Hall of Fame induction speech of watching that 1956 Addicts team which was led by Oscar Robertson and what an inspiration he was to you.
1: Oh yeah and uh, the, the, the great thing about it was grew up in the same neighborhood that I lived in and then we had an old we had a summer basketball tournament we called the Dust Bowl that All the college and pro guys would come back and play in. It happened one time a year, every August. And Oscar came back a couple times, so I got to meet him. I got to pass by his house where he lived, as well as several of the other players on the team. So It was not only that I got to see him on TV, but I was in the same neighborhood meeting their families and their brothers and their sisters. I was very close friends with Oscar's older brother. Uh, named Bailey Robinson and uh, he would just sit and tell me stories about how they grew up and you know I was literally mesmerized just sitting and listening to all those stories so those as well as all the other things that touched me within this little community that I lived in really shaped what I wanted to become.
0: Was there ever any doubt for you coming out of high school that you were going to go to Indiana?
1: No, pretty much, um, I I pretty much knew that I wanted to go to Indiana about the end of my junior year. um, My high school coach at that time, a guy by the name of Jerry Oliver, had taken a job as as an assistant coach right after our junior year at IU. And um, so we had been recruited heavily, myself and another guy named Steve Downing, who uh, also went there with me. And... um, Pretty much, I didn't, we didn't take a whole lot of college visits. I think I visited only three colleges and I had about 400 letters and offers uh, from different teams around the country, but I pretty well knew uh, I was going to Indiana. And, and then the most unfortunate thing that ever happened to me, I lost my dad uh, right after the Indiana-Kentucky All-Star game back in those days, and they still play that game today, but it was the second game I played down in Louisville and it was the best game I ever played in my life. And uh, my mother uh, at that point uh, was uh, really having a tough time and so I knew I'd make the right decision staying close to home.
0: When you say that was the best game you ever played in your life, you you mentioned in your Hall of Fame speech that that was the last game that your dad got to see you play. And when you say it was the best game of your life, people may not understand just how good it was. I believe you put up 53 and 30 in that All-Star game.
1: Right, yeah, yeah, I sure did. I. Uh, it was just one of those nights, you know, the, the bucket seemed like the ocean, and uh, I had an incredible group of guys. Just think about, you know, everybody who plays in that All-Star game is a, is a real star in their, in their own self. I mean, they come from a school where they're averaging 25, 30 points a game, and they are the man. And all of those guys sacrificed getting me the ball because I was hot. And, uh, you know, this kid who we played against, who, who guarded me during that two game series, his name was Joe Bosco and he was a great guy. Although he says he he made some comments that I wasn't quite as good as everybody made me out to be <laughs> because of my first game was average, but do you know, he calls me, he's called me several times. Uh, he lives in Oklahoma and, uh, he talks about that all the time. So. We ended up becoming really good friends, so it's uh, it's one of the great stories from from my little short career in high school.
0: That's awesome. Uh, yeah. I, I, so, I, so I have to ask you, you know, as you, you're going into college ball in those days, it was still the last few years of freshmen being ineligible to play varsity ball. Right. What do you, what do you do for that year? You've got this tremendous momentum going into college. And then you got a year that you have to wait to be yeah, able to play varsity. Yeah,
1: that that was really hard. Uh, we uh, we had a little freshman team where we could scrimmage and play against each other. We played the varsity team uh, and, and beat them by twenty. Our freshman group, but other than that, you know, you didn't get to you didn't get to put as much time in the court. And I guess the reasoning behind that was on the academic side, it gives a kid a chance to. You know, kind of get into the academic mode of going to college as opposed to high school and gives you a year to kind of figure things out. But yeah, it was really hard and you also got to remember you couldn't dunk a basketball during that era. So there was a, there was a lot of things that, um, you know, for about there was about a four year period there, I think. Four four or five year period were and I think it was called the Lou Alcinder rule. Yeah, that's right. And when he went when he went to UCLA, they they outlawed Duncan because they said these seven footers are coming along and they're making the game unfair.
0: Yeah, Kareem ruined the fun for everybody there for a few years. <laughs> he sure did, yeah so so you get your you get your chance obviously your sophomore year and you basically take the big 10 by storm you, you average 30 and 15 which are in insane numbers led the big 10 in, in both those categories uh you guys had a pretty good season and you at that time are looking at a, a decision to go pro possibly after your sophomore year which you know, today, that's no big deal. In fact, a kid who waits two years sometimes, somebody with your talent waiting two years to go pro would probably be news today. But yeah. but turning pro after a sophomore season in, in 1971 was, was still some controversial stuff. What was that decision process like?
1: It was unheard of. Spencer Haywood, who was the first guy who challenged the NBA, uh, in terms of coming out early or challenged basketball, period. He, he came actually to the ABA, and there was a rule that you had to be um, uh, four years of college or four years after you get out of high school before you could play pro. He challenged the rule and won. And I was the second or third guy to come after that rule was, rule was made official. And um, we had had a pretty good year, but that during that time, there was a lot of upheaval with civil rights and things of that nature. There was a backlash from our team against our coach, which I did not agree with. There were several players that went to the president of the school and said that our coach was not uh, being fair. They didn't think he wasn't a coach, and they were gonna not going to play, not come back and protest if, in fact, he was retained. Well, at that point, um, I just thought that I've had enough of this. Half the guys were that complained uh, were never going to play no matter where they went. They were not that good. Uh, but um, based on the fact that I had lost my dad um, two years ago and my mom was struggling financially, so it made my decision a lot more easier.
0: Now, in those days, of course, the the ABA owners were they were doing what they could to put local stars in in their markets, and so yes. so you had the opportunity there by going to the ABA also to be able to 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 join the the Pacers, which I would imagine was uh, was attractive to you.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, there was a team in the NBA that once I committed that I was going to leave then uh, there was a team in the NBA that would draft you and then those days they held those draft rights for the life of your basketball career and Philadelphia ended up being a team that uh, that drafted me and and then of course Indiana and as you said they always made it easy for the NBA franchises to go after their hometown kids and uh, so it, it was an easy choice for me. I played high school, college, and now pro ball, uh, right in my home state.
0: Well, you, obviously, you joined a heck of a talented Pacers team. You've got Mel Daniels, Roger Brown, Freddie Lewis, Bob Netelike, et cetera. Slick yeah. Leonard, your coach. What were your first impressions of pro ball? And what were your first impressions of Slick Leonard?
1: Well. You know, he had. You know, I, I had snuck in the old Coliseum where they played to watch a few games. Me and my teammates. There was an usher that we knew that would kind of sneak us in there, and we could stand over in a corner and watch him play. And it was so exciting to see him play. I think the first game I I went to, uh, Rick Barry, uh, was playing, um, and he was playing with a team out of Oakland, and I think he got fifty points that game. And I had never seen anything like it. You know, it was up and down. The red, white, and blue ball was so exciting. It was kind of like what you see from the Warriors today. You know, it was a lot of really good shooting, fast pace. And I knew the Pacers were very, very good. They had won that championship, as I said, the year before. They had Roger, Mel, Slick, three Hall of Famers Team, waiting on me to come to this team, so I was a little apprehensive. I just wanted to kind of feel my way through. Uh, didn't start when I came in, but I think about a third of the way through the season, you know, I played well enough to work myself into the lineup, and uh, we were able to, to to win a championship. I I took the slick Leonard like a duck to water, you know. <laughs> he was uh, He was quite a character. I'm, Pretty sure Neto told you a lot of slick stories if you talked to him. <laughs> he
0: did, in fact. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. But he was—he was a really, a really outstanding coach, a really good playoff coach. He was uh, had a real feel for what the defense was trying to do, and you know, in a playoffs, we got to make adjustments because you know, in those days, we played the same team eight, nine times. In those days, and uh, they knew what they knew their personnel and they knew the plays that you were running. So he was good at, at shifting things around in a playoff uh, environment. But uh, he was he was very kind to me. He had a lot of success in in, in the ABA, and it was just a lot of fun playing with. Uh, all those veteran guys as well as all the other players on the team.
0: Well, you averaged 17 and 10 that first year as you blended into this talented veteran team. 70, right. 73 you guys come back and you repeat, but during that 1972-73 season you really started to emerge as a as a dominant force.
1: Yeah. Well, at that time, um, you know, think about Roger Brown he got black ball from basketball for um take, he got taken advantage of by a guy in new york and they say he and connie hawkins uh, took some money gambling or so sort of took a bribe gambling on a game and which later uh proved not to be the case because they took the trial to thing the court and they won their case but they had lost six or seven years i think roger was 27 or 28 uh, was his first year with the pacers so uh, and they had played three years prior, so by the time my second year came around, they had gotten older. And, uh, you know, it slowed down a step. Uh, Mel, he, Neto, they were over 30. And um, so, you know, it was pretty easy for me to start kind of, you know, I was starting to fill my oats, and I started to take a little bit more of a leadership role and things of that nature.
0: Well, you averaged twenty-seven and twelve, and that season came down. You had a chance to to beat the Colonels in the finals in six games in your own building, and the Colonels won that game to yes. to even it up, and they they took the momentum back to Louisville with them for Game Seven. Tell me a little bit about what it was like going into that building, facing that team—Artis Gilmore, Dan Issel, Louis Dampier, those guys and beating them on their court in in an elimination game for the title.
1: Well, you know, they they've obviously felt the same way we did after they beat us in the sixth game because they played one hell of a game. Uh Dan was terrific, um, Gilmore was great, and Louis Dampier that don't seem like he ever missed a, an open shot, but uh, you know, out of those three championships that the Pacers won, all of them were won on the road. We never won a seven-game at home. Um, but uh, I, I don't know. It was just uh, it was just one of those grinded-out uh, type games, and uh, we kind of, you know, stayed close. And then, you know, at the end, that fourth quarter, we got a pretty nice little lead, and we held on to it, and was fortunate enough to beat those guys. But um, they, were, they were one of the great elite teams in, in the NBA, in the ABA. And then when they got Hubie Brown, who I think is just uh, one of the great coaches of all time, he, he was a perfect coach for that team. They were completely different to play against when Hubie got there as opposed to before. I don't think we'd have won that seventh game if Hubie Brown would have been the coach that, that year.
0: I'm convinced that Hubie is a genius. I I, I had him on this podcast, and I would ask Hubie a question, and Hubie was gone for 15 minutes. And he would take twists and turns and get inside Uh the game. I think I learned more about basketball from talking to Hubie Brown than probably any other uh, day in my life.
1: Oh, yeah, he's a savant. And, um, you know, he can give you – he'd talk about one play, but give you – Fifty options off of it, and uh, he, you know, and he's and he's great to listen to on TV because it makes it so easy to understand what's going on, and he explains it so well. But you could see the difference in the Kentucky team once he took it over. Uh, the, the grittiness on defense, much uh, much more effort on the defensive end, and uh, much more fluid uh, play and flow and ball movement on the offensive end. So, and they were a dominant team that year. They won. They were terrific.
0: And of course, they they beat you guys in, in the finals that year in in five, I believe. So. Right. Uh, right. and they had a huge run through, you know, to the end of the season. I think they won 22 of their last 25 games, including yeah. the playoffs. So, uh, they were, they were really not going to be denied that year, but, but you had right. a, you know, a terrific year. Uh, 74-75, you wind up being the co-MVP of the league with, with, uh, right. Dr. J. Although, right. and I'm not just going to say this because you're on the podcast, but, Looking at the numbers and everything, I don't know. I mean, I, I think I think the doctor was on your coattails a little bit yeah, that year, yeah, <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, but it was okay. But we, you know, we that year was a rebuilding year. We had myself, and we had a guy named Billy Knight who just came in as a rookie. We had, yeah, um, just a lot of young key. Roger, Mel, Neto, all those guys were gone. Freddie, they were all gone, and uh, we had a few leftovers. Myself, Darnell billy keller then we brought in guys like lenny almore and people like that was a six nine center so we were not really picked to go anywhere so that we were really an overachieving team you know denver was a dominant team that year along with kentucky and uh we beat denver in a seven game series in the playoffs we beat utah in a seven game series in the playoffs you know, based on where we were and our, our youth and everything, we, we did really, really well. But we we played well, as well as we could against Kentucky. But they just were, man, they just were just so good. My God, were they good.
0: And that turns out to be your your final games uh, in the yes. ABA, uh, that, that series. And let's talk about the move to the NBA. You know, you, as you mentioned, the, the 76ers, held your rights they they had drafted you and so they were just sitting back and waiting if McGinnis comes to the NBA he's going to be our guy and as as I understand it you preferred to go to New York and could you kind of take me through how that happened and how the Knicks were initially a factor in in this
1: well I had a New York agent at that time and I think he had some some priorities and he had uh, New York Nick connections. So I think they had conversations with my agent and, and they says, hey, it's, uh, we've got some interest in George. We're, we're, we would be willing to change, uh, challenge this rule uh, because they thought the rule was, was uh, outdated and old and they were gonna challenge it if in fact I would be willing to sign with them and they offered me at that time what I thought was crazy money, you know. And um yeah, I went to New York, kinda sit down and met with the folks and uh Red Holzman and general manager. And they were very kind and, and I, I loved the New York Knicks. I love the way they played um I said, you know we, we played that team in exhibition. And uh so that's how they got kind of hold of me. Red Holzman loved the way I played because I played a really good game against them in an exhibition game. And uh, they said if, if, if in fact I would sign, and they would give me a nice piece of money, a nice signing bonus, which is a half a million dollars, uh, they would indemnify me. And uh, if in fact they lost a case, well, that's that's exactly what happened. And I signed with the Knicks. I was very happy. Big press conference. And uh, of course, Philadelphia um, came back and, and sued. And eventually, Philadelphia won that case. Uh, and they but they were willing to match the offer that the Knicks gave me. So that's how I ended up in Philly.
0: Was it a situation where you knew that, that you were it was time to move on? Uh, in terms of any possibility of staying with the Pacers, there was that. A, was that at all a tough decision to to leave the yeah, franchise?
1: It was, it was a brutal decision. But here's the kind of guy Slick as Bob Leonard, our coach, he says, "George, you know, uh, you know how we feel about you here. Our league is struggling a little bit right now. We're struggling financially. We do not have the money to pay you. We cannot compete with Philadelphia or New York. You." You need to go. It would be like a college coach telling the kids today, "You're going to have to turn pro. You go ahead on. You need to take care of your family or whatever you need to do." I mean, that's the kind of guy he was, and he he encouraged me. He says, "Nobody's mad at you. You know, this is this is a, this is a business as well as a game at this level." And uh, he encouraged me to to go ahead and go, so that made it a lot easier. But I was torn for sure.
0: Well, as it turns out, you know, Slick was obviously right. I think we had three teams that fold. One team folded before the season started, and two teams folded. You know, not a lot of games into that last season for the ABA. Right. It was just, you know, it had run its course, yes. unfortunately. So. Here's a question that that I've always been curious about. You know, people talk about the relative talent levels between the leagues. And as you mentioned uh, a bit earlier, there there were exhibition games between the two leagues, and the ABA always fared quite well in those. Going into the NBA in 1975, obviously you made the transition just fine. You were a first-team All-NBA selection. But how did you assess the differences between the two leagues?
1: well you know it was uh, i was really surprised at uh, the slowness it was like a slow grinding out type of game they played where they walked it up and everything was predicated on the big guys down low and then the way the guys played guards or some of your small forwards got their shot was after you got the ball in down low if there was a double triple team uh, when the ball was passed back that's where your production of points would come uh from your smaller players it was a whole different concept than than i was i was used to it was like um i had been on a quarter horse or a thoroughbred and now i'm on a mule you know just kind of slow walking and and uh, I was I was really surprised. I'd seen these games on TV, and you know, every kid wanted to play in the NBA. But I just knew that our guys, our our, our stars in, in the ABA, would do very very well in uh, in the NBA. There was only one, maybe two power forwards that put the ball on the floor at that time in the NBA. So I had an easy time if I could get my guy. Out above the free throw line, and I could just make a couple dribbles and get around him because all they wanted to do is bang you down low, which is what they did in the league at that time. And uh, but it was it was not a tough transition at all for me.
0: Well, as you alluded to earlier, I mean the modern NBA game that we see today is definitely. It's definitely the descendant of the ABA game, not the sure. not the descendant of the NBA game of the 1970s by any means.
1: No, no question about it. You know, and uh, then you know when the leagues merged, it was pretty well proven how great our league was. If you look at uh, the All Star game, uh, and the All Pros, how well our guys did in the NBA. Um And then, you know, taking some of the things, their all-star game was our all-star game way back when, you know, the three-point contest, the dot contest, that's all starting the ABA. And uh, so it it gave, um, to me, a lot of credence to our league based on what we did. We knew what we did at that point meant something because you see what it's turned into today dunk contest is watched all around the world it's one of the premier events in the game and during all-star weekend and it all started in in the aba
0: all right let's talk about the merger you mentioned the 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 merger year 76 77 Mm -hmm. the the nets deal dr j to the to the 76ers Mm -hmm. and now we have the excitement of mcginnis and irving together on the same team right what are your recollections of that and how did you feel about because obviously you were the big dog in philadelphia and now you got another alpha coming to the team were there any concerns about how that was going to gel
1: not really um I mean, we, you know, I knew Jesus really well. We were a good friend. Uh, The team came to me and told me, we have a chance to get Dr. J. And what do you think? I said, hey, man, you got a chance to get him? Get him. You know, we went to the finals that first year we got him. And um, so, but being in this situation and being in a big city like Philadelphia with all the different papers and news outlets, there was always a section of the press who, tried to play that our team didn't get along. I mean, Jews didn't like each other, this, that, and the other, which was totally untrue. And we sold out almost every game that we played on the road except a couple of three because we played in the Superdome in New Orleans. But every place we played, we fell out. And uh, I, I was honored to be able to play on that team, even though we got beat by a really good Portland team in the finals of that 77 team. Uh, it was such an honor to be on a team like that, that um, we we kind of set the tone. You know, it says, well, that's stacking it up, two guys. And I look at, you look at the Boston Celtics, <laughs> the players they've had over the years, and they were one of the biggest complainers about that team. It says, yeah, that, that's going to hurt our league <laughs> when you start stacking all this talent. up <laughs> Nobody <laughs>
0: wants to hear that from the Boston Celtics.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so... You know, you guys came back the next year, won fifty five games. You actually won more games in seventy seven, right. seventy eight. You got upset in the playoffs, but right. you know. But as you say, the, the the Philadelphia papers, people are chirping about things, and and quite right. frankly, you know, uh, you know, some of the blame for whatever perceived problems there were, you know, was falling at your feet.
1: Yes, yes. And you know, there's there's whenever there is expectations that are not met. There's always blame at somebody's feet, and um, so it was clearly thrown my way. Um, And um, so, what do you do? You know, if you don't feel like you're wanted, and they want to move you, you you, you know, you go ahead and you take you you bite the bullet and you go. And that's what I did.
0: Well, you've been open about how much that trade hurt you at the time and yeah. you know that it was an emotional and, and psychological blow to you in, in some ways and i think it fractured your relationship at least at the time with billy cunningham
1: very much so very much so i was um you know billy cunningham ended up being my coach uh that first uh, the second year second or third year i think uh I think I I played for Gene Shue the first year, and then Billy got the job the second year. But I played with Billy the first year. Me and him were teammates, and of course I played against him in the ABA. We were real good friends. Our families knew each other. And uh, my first year in Philly, I remember running down the court beside him, and I heard a pop in his leg. And it was so, uh, so horrific. I knew that it was a major injury, and he went down like he had been shot. And uh, my heart broke for him and uh, spent a lot of time with him. As I said, we became good friends. But, you know, as you get older and you start um, kind of trying to understand his point of view, uh, he, he he did the best thing for the organization. He ended up winning a championship. And he called me. He's called me several times. And uh, we've had some good conversations, especially on this Hall of Fame induction, and it was it was really you know nice to have a good long conversation. Jim. But you know sometimes when you're young, you know you want to hold grudges, but that really really wasn't fair to Billy because he was looking into the best thing thing for the organization.
0: So you go to Denver, where yeah. Larry Brown had wanted to get you. Mm -hmm. and you wind up in Denver, and the story goes, you can set the record straight here, George, but the story goes that you guys butted heads almost from Jump Street, and that Larry did not really like the way that you practiced. How much of that's true?
1: Larry Larry Brown is the biggest little sissy that has ever (laughs) coached a game. He is absolutely the biggest punk. You know, he's a, he's a, he's a guy who would look you in the face and tell you how much he loved you. And behind your back, he'd cut you apart, but he wouldn't have the guts to do it to your face. You know, I, I played against Larry Brown and, uh, we played him in Denver and, uh, Freddie Lewis, uh, smacked him around a little bit. And I had to pull Freddie off of him one game because he wanted to kill him. But I, I do not like, people who uh, he he like he, he always loved to talk to the press you know and he would go to the press and he was such a great coach and he was a very good coach uh, but his personality was he was such a wimp uh he he talked about integrity and this and that well what about you know if you're gonna if you're gonna preach it you gotta live by it too you know, everywhere he's coached and he's left, he's left it in shambles, you know, in Denver and all the teams he coached, they were left in shambles. And then he got called for cheating at UCLA, uh, doing some awful things at Kansas. And then MS, uh, with this last college where he was in Texas, he, he got caught doing things. So, if he's, if he's gonna sit around and talk about other players, then he's gotta be able to take it. And then when he says stuff about me, I will go right back at him like I'm talking to you and let, let it be known that he is a punk.
0: How tough of a situation is that to be in a place where you've gotta perform, but you've got this uncomfortable dynamic with your coach?
1: I had never had a situation like that ever. It, it was this, I was not a good person. I was not a good guy. And I had never had anybody say that about me. And then I said, Well, you know what? I can't, I can't, I'm not going to sit here and take this. I'm not going to take this from him. So if Larry Brown saw me today, he'd run across the street to avoid me. <laughs>
0: So, you wind up getting traded back to Indiana, and your career closes out where it all began, but by that point in time, your body is starting to break down on you. Sure, absolutely. One of the things that I'm always interested in when I talk to a world-class athlete, and obviously, you know, one of the things that people say about you first is, you know, what a physical powerhouse you were. Um, you know, even other MBA talent guys. When you hear MBA and ABA talent guys start marveling at the physical prowess of another guy, you know that he's 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 on a on a higher level indeed. And so what's it like to be at age thirty one, which in just about any career in the world other than professional athletics, age thirty one you're just getting started. But to know that this thing that you have excelled at on a world stage, your body is not going to be compliant anymore.
1: Well, if you go back and you think about those times, uh, it was very rare that you see a guy played more than twelve or thirteen years. A thirteen-year career during the you know the era that I played in would be phenomenal. No one played that long. There was no summer. Uh, programs or workout schedules that you had. When I first joined the Pacers, there was four guys on the team that had summer jobs. Wow! And uh, so you went to training camp to get in shape. So it's more because the money now is so big. It's it's a year-round sport where these guys have trainers and special diets and things of that nature. Uh, That was not prevalent when I played. Guys, uh, you know, in the summer, you, you ran around and tried to make extra money or whatever you needed to do, uh, and then you got in shape uh, during training camp. So as a result, uh, careers didn't last as long. You look at guys as great as Larry Bird, and uh, he, he played 13 years, and he told me that uh, starting in year about 10 or 11, he knew, he, he thought each one of those years he, he might have to have to give it up because he was hurting so much, you know.
0: Well, what do you think today when you hear like all the, you know, I'm going to call it whining of players yeah. who they don't like back-to-backs and no. so on and so forth, and I'm thinking, yeah. you know, I mean, in your era, <laughs> this was just this was just the way of life.
1: Yeah, yeah, I mean, you know, you go on a 10 day road trip and you play eight games. And, um, you know, you flew the commercial. And, uh, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's totally different today. But, you know, every generation is softer. I got a kid and I got grandkids, so I see it in them. You know, it's, uh, it's a whole different, uh, world with our children. And, you know, I guess we all want to make our children's lives a little bit better than ours. But, um, I think, Generally, people in my age group do get a little fed up with all the whining that some of the athletes do uh, today. Because boy, do they have it good; they make uh, they make incredible money, um, and um, just just some of the little things that they complain about is it's, uh, it's kind of ridiculous. But uh, you know, it is what it is.
0: So, so what do you do in your early thirties? In, in you're looking on to the next. Phase of life. How does an athlete make that transition back into the civilian world, so to speak?
1: It's it's always hard. The first year or two is hard because you're used to being around all the guys. You have all this camaraderie. That's kind of like your second family. So you kind of wane You got to wane yourself from that. I we we moved out to Denver, Colorado. Uh, went back out there because I love the outdoors. I, I love the fish. Uh, I love being up in the mountains. I, I learned to. Snow ski. I went to Alaska in the summers and fished there, and I did that for about five years. And then at some point, I said, you know, I knew I made good money, but my money was not going to last for a lifetime. So I knew I had to come back and you know figure out you know what I wanted to do. And uh, we moved back home, and I uh, got involved with a lot of different companies. I, I start broadcasting, I broadcast butler basketball. I worked for the uh, three years for the Colts. I worked as a mentor for the you know Indianapolis Colts and that was pretty neat to be around a professional football organization and saw how all that happened. There was a whole different mindset where I had never played less than 100 games a year. They played 16, but every every game was like a seventh game playoff. Right uh, for them it was it was that important. So that was that was interesting. I worked for the Pacers. I did some of their games, and then um, about 1992, I, my wife and I were out to dinner with a, some folks who had talked about doing something on my own. So I started a little company in 1992 that I'm still involved with today, 26 years. So been pretty fortunate. Been blessed.
0: Well, that's tremendous, and I wanna and I wanna talk about the work that you're doing today with the Drop in Dimes Foundation in just a second. But I gotta ask you before we move to that uh, about that jump shot of yours, the one handed <laughs> jumper that is one of the most distinctive. Maybe maybe that was your signature in a way because yeah. it's such a distinctive shot. You know, seeing McGinnis go up in the air with that left arm you know, off to the side and just a, a true one-handed jump shot. How did that become your shot and how many times did coaches try to change it uh, when you were young? Every,
1: every, every coach I ever had tried to <laughs> what the hell is that? Uh, but uh, I broke my hand, I broke my left wrist, I fell off a horse when I was about 12 years old. And I had a pretty clean break right in my wrist, so I were cast, um, I don't know, it was about three months. So I just started shooting. Uh, with, I always had big hands for, for, you know, even when I was a young kid. And that's kind of how it started. And then I, I, I used to watch Oscar, and I was trying to emulate him, and it just developed this terrible habit of shooting with one hand. Then when I my hand healed up, I tried to put the other hand on it. Hell, I couldn't shoot it in the ocean. <laughs> So that's, that's kind of how that all happened. And uh, basically after, you know, you know, when I was playing, you know, they, they just never, they just said, Hey, you know, you're shooting pretty, you know, the bucket's going in half the time, so we're not going, we're not going to fool with you.
0: Yeah, don't fix it if it's not broke. I mean, yeah, McGinnis yeah. is averaging 25 or 30, so he's doing something, <laughs> yeah. right? right. Well, l- let's talk about dropping dimes because, uh, you know, I know that the Dropping Dimes Foundation is doing some tremendous work for the guys who played in the ABA and – um, are not uh, really receiving their their just uh, financial dues. I think from uh, from the NBA. Uh, could you talk a little bit about uh, what Drop in Dimes is the, the, and the mission that that you guys are trying to accomplish?
1: Well, it's uh, it's a foundation that was started by uh, Scott Carter and Doctor and, uh, Abrams, John Abrams, and Ted Green, and they. Um you know, grew up being ABA fans when they were young. Uh, John Abrams was a ball boy uh, when I even played uh, for the Pacers. And uh, so they, um, you know, we were their heroes. And uh, so they're seeing kind of some of the things that's going on with the athletes who are, you know, having tough times, especially guys that played in the ABA, uh, didn't get a real real pension or anything like that we know that the pre 65 players in the in the nba finally uh, got a pension because you know that year of guys oscar robertson and a group of other guys end up suing uh, and end up winning so they finally uh, have a pension and that's one of the things that this group has really tried to uh, you know help some of the players there's not many of us left and there's Two, three, four of us die every year. Who um, brought so much and gave so much to the game, and um, they're just asking for a little bit—you know, just a little bit of help. I don't—I don't think that uh, you know—it would take a lot of money to fund a pension uh, for the players that we have left. But the Dropping Down Dimes Foundation uh, is—is about trying to help. Some of the guys who are having a tough time now, you know they've brought guys here uh, into Indianapolis for dental work uh, uh, for different types of types of needs in terms of doctors uh they've helped them with housing and clothing and things of that nature so it's just a full-faceted organization that's trying to reach out and find out where is the need that that some of our players have who played back in the era, and then seeing if we can fulfill those needs by uh, contacting different professionals that uh, is associated with the Dropping Downs Foundation and, and things like that. So those those three guys have done a terrific job of trying to identify people and help several players, several of them in Kentucky too, by the way, that have had a tough time.
0: Well, I have all the respect in the world for Scott Tarter and what yeah. you guys, uh, such as yourself, and, and the other former yeah. players that are on the advisory board are, are doing, and, right. and I don't want to speak for you, but I, I think it's a real black eye on the NBA that they were not step up, and for the NBA, as much money as they make, the the money that it would yeah. take to help some of these guys out, it, it really amounts to pocket change for the league, in my yeah. opinion.
1: Yeah that's exactly right and that's that's the point and um uh, i think that uh, there's still work going on as we speak uh trying to get this thing uh, resolved hopefully we'll have a good conversation about this on uh, april 7th at the reunion uh bob costas is a is in our corner and so he's gonna he's gonna lend his name and his support to to the cause and We've got some we've got some other high-ranking high, uh, high ranking players, not only ABA guys but NBA guys who want to support this, so hopefully we're going to get a good outcome. There's not many of us left and we're not talking about a lot of money, so we're just going to keep working at it.
0: Well, George, as you said, you guys in the ABA, you were our heroes when we were kids and, and you guys still are. What a pleasure to have you on the show today. Congratulations again on the Hall of Fame enshrinement, and I hope that I see you in Indianapolis on April 7th.
1: Oh, you bet, Ricky. Thank you so much, too, man. It really a pleasure talking to you.
0: My thanks again to George McGinnis, who I truly look forward to seeing this weekend in Indianapolis at the big, huge ABA 50th reunion, the anniversary celebration to end all others. It's April 7th in Indianapolis over 100 former ABA players will be in attendance they're going to announce the 50 greatest ABA players of all time it's really just with no exaggeration a -a once-in-a-lifetime event I'm gonna make a weekend of it and I just cannot wait now if you're also interested in attending this event you can go to droppingdimes.org backslash ABA underscore 50th and they're going to have all the information for you right there on the site and I hope that I see you there and if you decide that you are going to come to the event and join the festivities in Indianapolis shoot me a direct message on Twitter let me know that you're going to be there and I'll be happy to meet up with you and say hello. My guest next week is the 2011 National Sportscaster of the Year You know him as the play-by-play voice of college basketball on ESPN, the former play-by-play voice of ESPN's Sunday Night Baseball. Dan Shulman is going to join me for what promises to be a really fine conversation about his many years in broadcasting and a lot of the memorable sports moments that he's covered both on television and radio. (laughs) So make sure that you tune in next time and join me, Ricky Cobb, for another episode of the podcast that I know that you'll never want to miss, the Super 70 Sports Podcast.